morning. It is a beautiful day that the Lord has made, amen, and we will rejoice, and I am rejoicing. We have a very special first-time visitor here this morning. Uh, her name is McKenna Lorraine Verharst. Sarah, can you wave in the back? Welcome. With her new baby that she just had, thank you. Uh, she just had her child a few weeks ago, and this is McKenna's first time here, so uh, congratulate her and don't get too close. Um, this month is October. It's the first Sunday of October, which means there's a holiday at the end of this month. What holiday is that? Ooh, you have been well-trained, KBC. Some of you are like, Halloween? Yes, you are correct, but more importantly is Reformation Day. Very good. Yes, October 31st, year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg, sparking what would become known as a Protestant Reformation, which would actually change the landscape of the world, and the ripple effects last even to today, believe it or not. So a day far more worthy of our uh, commemoration than Halloween, although I will enjoy Halloween with you as I dress up and I don't know what I'm going to be, but um, my wife knows I don't. She just gives me the clothes and I wear them. Makes a good marriage, amen? Uh, just whatever you say, babe, yes. Um, I tell you what, there are certain memories and events that I try to burn into my memory so as never to forget them. And I'm sure you have these as well. We, we call this in our uh, modern phraseology, uh, being present, right? I want to I be present. I just want to soak all of this in, not be distracted. I want it to burn there. I don't ever want to forget it. There, there's memories like that that I really try hard. Um, and I've been, some have told me I have a photographic memory, so I can see things with, with great clarity. Uh, and now I have to focus a little bit more than I used to have to, but to, to make that happen. And so some of those days would be days like my wedding day. First time I see my wife walk out onto the beach, uh, down in McKenna, Secret Beach, that, that would be one of those days. Or the birth of your children, right? That almost naturally burns itself into your brain, right? The, the day you're, you saw your child, the day you'll never forget for the very first time. Or especially sweet moments with my children, like I try and just sometimes scarlet when she looks at me with those beautiful big brown eyes and those little pigtails, and she's smirking right now, and she, she looks at me and, and musters up with all the sincerity that she can and says, I love you, Daddy. And you're just like, whatever you want, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What do you want? You want something? I'll give it to you. You want candy? I'll give it to you, right? I want to burn those things into my brain so that I can remember these things and think about them often and with clarity and vividness. I don't do that merely as a way to live in the past, right? It's not just about living in the past. and it's, It spurs me on to treasure the present and to be faithful for the future, to treasure the present moments and to be faithful for the future. And there are different points in my life along these lines uh, that we would think about and we should think about often. 
And like there are points in our life, there are truths in the Bible that should do the same thing. There are things that God has revealed that we should try to, as it were, burn them into our heart so as never to forget them, to spur us on to faithfulness, to spur us on to perseverance, to treasure every moment from God. That's what I hope to do in this new sermon series on soteriology. Now, some of you are like, whoa, I was with you and now I'm lost. Soteriology, how God saves people. How God saved you. With this new series that we'll be in for the next several weeks, I hope that by thinking and burning and and looking with clarity at how God saves, that we wouldn't merely just talk about theology, but that we would, as it were, burn the work of God into our very souls so that we might worship deeply and live faithfully. At various times and seasons in my life, I can mark and trace significant shifts in my thinking in response to the teachings of Scripture. These shifts impact who I am, how I read the Bible, how I serve, everything I do, as it should when you read the Bible. Amen? It changes you. We don't change it. Some of you have come in here and have commented, wondering, how do I see some of the things I see, right? And Pastor Randy, you you teach things that, that I've never heard or in a way that I've never heard. How does that happen? Some of that flows from seeing God's Word and seeing truths and seeing how it's all linked intricately from the very mind of God, through the Spirit of God, teaching us the things of God that we might worship and behold His glory, Some of you find it at once biblical and encouraging, the things that you have heard taught from here, and I am deeply thankful for that. In this series, you're going to see a large portion of the foundation that has helped me to see what I see. I'll give you some examples of these shifts that I'm talking about. You're like, Pastor, are you talking about these shifts in your thinking? What What are some examples of that? I'll give you two examples. Number one, the first example I would give you would be a shift in thinking on God's Word and the sufficiency of His Word for all of life's problems. For all of life and godliness, God's Word is sufficient. It tells us everything we need to know to obey and become like Jesus Christ. That was a massive shift for me. Another shift came in the doctrine of the church, that not only is God's Word sufficient to make me like Jesus, It is sufficient to make his church like Jesus. Amen? Amen. God's word is sufficient to build his church in what we call the doctrine of the church. Here's another word. You're going to leave here with a few big words this morning. Uh, You're welcome. You can sound smart and dazzle people with them. No, not really. I hope not. Another word we call the doctrine of the church is called ecclesiology. It's just the doctrine of the church. 
In my pastorate over the past six years, and even before that, we at Kahului Baptist Church have spent a lot of time examining what is the nature of the church. What does God's Word reveal about the church? What does it look like? What are you doing here this morning? What does it mean to be a member? What is a pastor? How does a pastor interact with the members? What, right? We've done this for, for the past few years at different times and in different ways. These are very important for us, and they have been. They have been a blessing to our church as we have seen God bless, as we have realigned the church in accordance with the Scriptures. But both of these two things, the sufficiency of God's Word, and the doctrine of the church are rooted in and flow from a significant shift in seeing how God works in the doctrine of salvation. We cannot understand, I would say, the nature of the church if we do not understand how He builds that church by saving fallen men and women. So, in true Reformation Day spirit, we're going to examine the doctrines that fueled the Reformation. Last year, we looked at the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is, anybody know? Scriptures alone, or only the scripture. Sola scriptura, the sufficiency of the Word of God. This year, we're going to look at two other doctrines that were foundational to changing the world, literally. That would be by grace alone, through faith alone. Sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we're going to look at these various phrases, these doctrines of the Reformation, which is really to say we're going to examine salvation. Now here's my aim. There's a lot of introduction because this is the first sermon in this series, and so you get a lot of introduction, a lot of groundwork. My aim is not to go into all the nuances of systems of thought or streams of theology, or my aim is even less to stir up needless debates. Rather, I want to give you an intro and an overview into a subject that I have found many people, maybe you find yourself, have surprisingly never received direct instruction on. Think about that. We hear about the gospel. I proclaim the gospel. You've heard it proclaimed throughout your church life, wherever you have gone. But how often do you hear instruction on how exactly God brings salvation about? Many have never heard direct teaching on such a thing. The result of this is that many have kind of cobbled together a system of belief on salvation throughout the years that's often marked with inconsistencies at best or errors at worst. These inconsistencies or errors, if they're left without correction, can and often do wreak havoc in the life of that individual when trials come or in the life of a church because we've never had direct teaching on it. So, my aim is simple. Here it is. So, that's not my aim. Here is my aim. My aim is simple. That you would glorify God and adore Him for the grace He has shown you in salvation. 
that you would glorify God at the end of this and throughout, that you would bring him glory and adore him for the grace he has shown you in saving you. Think back to that day that you, you first gave your life to Jesus Christ. Think back to that day. Every one of us, it's different, different ages, different seasons, different things. What was God doing to save you? Think back to that. What happened? Why did you believe? What hope is there? Who, who in your life do you want to see come to know Jesus? I think we all have somebody like that, amen? We all have somebody that we're praying for that's like, man, God, I just... Would you bring them to saving faith? How does he do that? These are the types of questions that will be answered throughout this time. And as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So to that end, let us pray. Father, thank you for the grace you have demonstrated to us. Great indeed is your faithfulness to all generations. Father, I pray this morning you would, by your spirit and for your glory, guide us into your truth. Help our minds to focus not on football or on our Sunday morning feasts, but may our minds focus on the feast for our souls that we desperately need in your word. I pray that as we examine doctrine, that we would form, that you would form and cultivate deep pillars of faith that withstand trials and temptations and challenges that we will encounter. And more than that, May you form an overflow or cause an overflow of joy and worship to flow from your people for the glory of your name. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, number one. First is just a pure, uh, easy terminology and overview, all right? Terminology and overview. There are various schools of thought on this matter. Each of them come with various names and etc. What I want to do is I want to be up front with you and put all my cards on the table. So Revelation, I hid my cards. I played them close to the chest. You had to wait till the end to get the big reveal. This is going to be the opposite. I'm going to put my cards up front on the table so you know exactly how we're coming at this and where we're going. So you can be like good Bereans and search the scriptures yourself. So I'm going to put my cards on the table. Many would label me a Calvinist. That's the word, a Calvinist, a five-point Calvinist at that. Now, some ears are shocked and some are confused, and we'll deal with each of those in time. Let me say about that, I don't mind that label. I don't mind it, nor do I champion it. Hear that? I don't mind it, nor do I champion it. I'm not sure Calvin would have approved of people using his name in this manner, nor that, that that was his intention. John Calvin was a renowned theologian from Geneva, excellent scholar. There's history behind why his name was used and associated with that. We won't get into that now. But if you don't know what that is, if you've never heard of that term, 
as we like to say here, no worries. What is Calvinism? If I had to put it simply, it is the belief that God alone saves sinners. That's it. Put simply, that's, that's what it is. You say, isn't it more than that? Well, of course it's more than that. But that's put simply. God alone saves sinners. That is all the system teaches. Others have different names for what I'm going to teach. Some would call it the doctrines of grace. Why? Because the emphasis truly is on the great God of all grace. Others refer to this as Reformed theology. Even that title would need clarification as it tends to be more broad in its application. But whatever you call it, there are different names for it, and we have different names for other systems of belief. Some people don't like labels at all. They just say, I just believe the Bible. Amen. Amen. And I certainly want people to believe the Bible. I want you to believe the Bible. There's no issues there. That's not a bad thing. The problem is if everybody says, I believe the Bible. You see? You talk to a, a, a Baptist or of whatever persuasion, I believe the Bible. You talk to somebody in a, in a Hope Chapel, I believe the Bible. You talk to Calvary, I believe the Bible. You talk to Mormons, I believe the Bible. You talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe the Bible. Everybody says, I believe the Bible. That's, yes, that's, that's not a bad thing to say, I believe the Bible. Perhaps if this was the year 35 AD, and there was really only one church, that would be totally acceptable to say, yes, I believe the Bible. However, being so far removed, having so many churches and people of all, all the people who all claim to believe the Bible, it can make it difficult to distinguish streams or systems of thought without a label of some kind. I would suggest we must have labels not because I'm prone to labels or care about labels, but as a means of referring in shorthand to a system without having to explain the whole entirety of that system every time we're talking about it, you see? It's a, it's a shorthand way to summarize a system of beliefs. What's the title of this church? Kahului what? Baptist Church. That's a label. Some of you are perhaps not keen on that label. Others are very thankful for that label. But nonetheless, it is a label, Baptist, that encapsulates a shorthand view so that anybody walking by can say, these are general tenets of belief. You see? That's all the label does. To that degree, labels can be helpful. They can also be hurtful, can't they? Labels can be distorted. Past experiences can shade exactly what a meaning is. For instance, anybody ever heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Has anybody ever invited one of your friends to our church and them say, oh, you go to a Baptist church like Westboro? Anybody ever have that happen to me? I've had that happen to me. And I have to say, no, not like Westboro, in which case the label has been tainted, hasn't it? You see? So, I don't mind the label as a means of shorthand, referring to summary way of a system of beliefs, but nor do I champion it because I would say, I believe the Bible. Amen? Amen. So often when somebody says in public discourse that 
like this, if I were to just say, I just believe the Bible, it's more of a rhetorical device aimed not really at saying something substantial, but as a way of gaining rhetorical points on a various party, you see? And so, yes and amen, I believe the Bible. Calvinism, that term, however helpful or unhelpful it may be, is a way of shorthand of referring to what we're going to be talking about. I would say great care should always be taken in more detailed discussions to define terms and meanings. Always. Some of you may have had bad experiences with somebody who identified as a Calvinist. Once upon a time, a man walked through our doors and he said, Hi, I'm John Doe. I'm a five-point Calvinist. And I thought that was very odd, an odd way to introduce yourself, the first thing that you would say to a stranger like that. I, I thought that was very odd, and that was a red flag for me. And it proved, that flag proved to be correct, as this person showed themselves to be what I would consider a wolf in sheep's clothing and did great harm. So some of you have had bad experiences with somebody who has identified themselves in this way. Let me say this. May we never judge doctrines by the people who practice them. Amen? Amen. May we never judge the truth of the gospel by the people in this room, but by whether it's truthfully taught in Scripture and whether there is an empty tomb. Amen? Amen. Let us judge it by what the Bible teaches. So we're going to cover this in weeks to come. We're going to use a popular acronym that captures the five points of Calvinism or soteriology as they were brought up. TULIP. Have you, anybody heard of that? TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. It is a flower. It is also an acronym to explain this system of belief. Now, there are five letters in TULIP. Total depravity unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Those would be the T-U-L-I-P. Now you're like, I have no clue what any of those are. That's okay. In the weeks to come, you will find out what they are. Again, am I tied to the labels? No. Those are just shorthands of referring to these things. Some people have different names for total inability, radical depravity, whatever it is. I'm fine with different names and different things. I'm not tied to those. Again, it's just shorthand to explain in a systematized way these things. So we're going to examine TULIP, but not in that order. We're going to examine it in a way that was helpful for me in the order that we encounter them the order that we encounter them. So I'm going to change it. It'll be teop. Teop. Not tulip, but teop. Total depravity, irresistible grace, unconditional election, limited atonement, perseverance of the saints in the weeks to come. So without further ado, let's turn to the T, total depravity now. That's also the title of my sermon, Total Depravity. So, this is a fun subject. Uh, you're going to see why in a little bit of time. Stick with it at the end. You might think, I know there's a lot of people who think, why do we even talk about these things? I mean, let's just do what God's Word says, and we'll be good. And I say yes and amen to that. Yes and amen to that. But there are underpinnings underneath all of our actions, aren't there? There are theological underpinnings that inform what we do and how we do it that are very important. And this is one of those things. 
So we will turn at the end and see this is not an academic endeavor only. This is immensely practical for your life, for your challenges this morning. If you don't understand total depravity, I would suggest all your relationships will be a train wreck. If you don't understand this doctrine. So, let's start. Paul taught it. Man, I, I, I had a, a list, no less than 100 passages. That did it, that was, that's not including individual verses. That's, that's 100 passages. I, I was just, should I just blanket all of this to show how, how clear this is in Scripture? No, I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to hone it down to a few. Two brief, brief passages Paul taught. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Wes wrote it. Uh, wrote it. He didn't, he didn't write it. Uh, he read it. Wes is inspired, the apostle. Um, no. He read it. It says this, verse 1, and you were dead. So get, get the picture of deadness. Uh, I, I don't want to cause anybody any trauma or flashbacks, but, but if you've ever seen a corpse, it's a disturbing thing. Uh, I, I've seen grown men, police officers, walk out of a room with a body in it because it's just a disturbing thing to see a corpse. It's not natural. Sin does something unnatural to us. And the Bible set, describes our fallen spiritual state apart from God. The very first word here is, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, some have tried to take this picture of dead and not say, well, that doesn't mean, what I'm going to argue in a few minutes is inability. That really just talks about the separateness of it. Yeah, for sure, you are separate. You are separated from God as you could possibly be by your natural state. You are dead spiritually in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul's talking in past tense because he's writing to Christians. Are Christians dead? No, they have been given new life, which we'll talk about that. But in the past tense, your natural state is dead spiritually. Following the course of this world, this is the universality of it. It is the whole world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See how it describes us? The sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived Here's an important word. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You hear those, that terminology? Sons of disobedience. Carrying out the desires, the passions of the flesh. We were slaves to our desires. I'll flesh that out in a minute. Let's go to Romans 3, 10 to 18. I'm just going to read the first few verses, starting in verse 10. Paul is a good theologian. He's quoting the Old Testament from Psalms. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. I can't tell you how many people I ask this question. If you die and you stand before God this morning and he says, why should I let you in to be with me? What are you going to say? And almost 
a ton of people, I don't know, the, a ton of people say, well, I've been mostly pretty good. I've tried to obey his law. I've done more good than bad. I think he'll let me in. I hear that all the time. Another way to say that, if we use this phrase, is I think I'm just righteous enough. Let me ask you this morning, what does this say to that answer? Wrong. There is none righteous. What about one? No, not even one. So our greatest need this morning from this passage, what's our greatest need this morning? Is righteousness, isn't it? Your greatest need today is righteousness. And you don't have it by yourself. He goes on, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Have you heard anybody say before in a missions conference perhaps like, man, the, the lost people out there, they're hungry for God. They're seeking after God. Have you ever heard anybody say that? What does this say? No one seeks after God. Now, I want to encourage how you interact with Scripture, because I know some of your brains right now are going through, but, but I heard about this, and these people, and they heard the gospel, and then, or, or they, they wanted to hear God, and then they were seeking, and then this missionary came, but doesn't that, let, let me, I don't want to interact with that question, but with the train of thought, at how you're analyzing it, I would suggest that's backwards. We do not take the truthfulness of God's Word and filter it through our experience, do we? To determine what's right or what's wrong, what it means. We don't do that, do we? We take the truthfulness of God's word and filter our experiences and understanding through it, don't we? That's how we do it. So we shouldn't say, well, I heard about this. Rather, we should say, how does what God's word say inform my thinking about this experience? You see? That's how we are submissive to the scriptures. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He goes down and closes with the passage. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Wow. That's worth just thinking about for a minute. Nobody even does good. You say, wait a minute. I, I see people do good all the time. Paul says, nobody does good. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is only one good. Who? God. We have to redefine good, don't we? Is it possible to do a civic virtue, we could say, a, a moral action for immoral reasons? Is that possible? Yeah, sure it is. The scriptures command us, whatever we eat, drink, or do, do all to the glory of God. Is it possible to drink a cup of orange juice in a sinful way? And the pride of my heart that says, I have provided this for my, you see? The scriptures say, whatever does not proceed from faith is not pleasing to God. That's how Paul can say, there is none righteous, not even one. 
All of my deeds must be filtered through the first two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I am not obeying the first commandment, it doesn't matter how much I obey the second commandment. I am a sinner. My righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags before the Lord. That's how Paul can say there's not even one good deed, one good person in this world. So our greatest need is righteousness, and our greatest obstacle to obtaining righteousness is our radical depravity, our moral corruption that is so thorough, so impacting that it taints everything that we do. One theologian, he was an American theologian, his name is like McKenna Lorraine, Lorraine Bettner. This is what he said. He summed up total depravity like this. He discussed inability. This doctrine of total depravity or total inability, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that any one is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human will is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin. He is actuated by wrong principles and that he is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. That's what it means. You are under the curse of sin. Now, here, he, I'm just going to flesh out what he says it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're as sinful as you could possibly be. That would be utter depravity. doesn't mean you do as much evil as you can do. I'm going to wake up today, and I'm going to just send my little brains out. That's, that's not what it, what it teaches. You are still in the image of God. You still reflect your creator. It says that you can do nothing meriting salvation, not that you are nothing. You see? We shouldn't take this too far to say, well, if there's no such thing as, as nobody's good, is it right to call my child a good kid? You're a good boy today, whatever your name is, Titus or Haddon. You're a good boy today, Haddon. No, you're not. You're totally depraved. Right? It, no. Like, you can, he is in the image of God. He is a gift of God. He bears the mark of his creator. He does good things. But good to merit salvation? No. No. You see? So man isn't as sinful as he could be, but sin has impacted the totality of our being. We cannot do that which pleases God in your natural estate. You say, okay, so I get that we're sinful, but where does this idea of inability come from, that, that I can't respond to the gospel proclamation? Because some would say, yes, you're sinful, but when the gospel is preached, you have the freedom of the will to respond positive or negative, that I can do that. How can you say that I am unable, morally unable, to do that? Where does that idea come from? If we go a little bit further in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it comes from passages like these. Listen to what it says, Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? 
cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh in their natural fallen state cannot, you see that inability, cannot please God. To which you could ask, why can't my mind, my fleshly mind, submit to God's law? Is this a natural inability? So for instance, if I were to say, my my father-in-law was here and he went scuba diving. Anybody ever been scuba diving? I've never been. Uh, But he went scuba diving and he wanted me to go scuba diving with him. Let's say, I want to live underwater. I want, you know what? I, I don't like this land anymore. I don't want to move to Wailea. I want to move underwater. Could I live underwater without any help? No, because I'm not a fish. I don't have gills. I don't have a tail that can live in the water. My body temperature, I would have hypothermia. I have a natural, you could say, inability to live underwater. So when Paul says that I cannot please God, is this a natural inability? Something about how I'm made? No. It's something else, he means. Check out John chapter 3, verse 19. This is Jesus talking. You know John 3, 16, don't you? Same context. Check it out. Jesus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people what? Loved. What? Darkness. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see that? John 6, 44, Jesus, no one can come to me, nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, the Pharisees, and those Jews who were arguing with him, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So what we find in the Bible is our fallenness is so radical. Our faculties are so impacted by sin that Jesus says we are captivated by our own sinful desires. We sin because in your fallenness, the way you're naturally born, you don't just sin, you love darkness. That's the testimony of the Scriptures. You're not just a slave of sin. This is a willing slavery. We cannot come to the light to Jesus because we will not come to the light to Jesus. Even as a Christian, I'm talking about our natural state, but even as a Christian, when we sin, think about this. Last time you sin, ultimately it's because in that moment, if I'm honest with myself, if you're honest with yourself, we sin because we wanted to. We desired something more in that moment than obedience to God. The testimony of the Scriptures is singular. We don't just sin by nurture, circumstances. We sin by nature. And that nature is further nurtured as we grow up and is entrenched in rebellion against God. It is only this. That explains why no matter where in the world you go, man is sinful and does wicked things. That is the universal. Every culture, every planet, or every, every continent, every place on this planet that you go, 
is impacted by sin. Men do things that are wrong. No wonder God says, no one seeks after God. There is none righteous, not even one. So all mankind is justly under the wrath of God and worthy of his judgment. What does this mean for you this morning? What does it mean for you this morning? Let's start to pull it in. It means you are more sinful than you could even imagine in your state apart from Christ. That's what it means. You are more sinful than you can imagine. The Bible says of fallen man that every thought, get this in Genesis, every thought and intention of their heart is only evil continually. That's how God views fallen man. Wow, that is very underwhelming or overwhelming, depending on how you look at it. Isn't this an inspiring sermon this morning? You feel like this is what you need? I just needed to come and hear how awful I was. I would suggest that's exactly what you need. Point number three. So number one was terminology. Number two, total depravity. Number three, total dependency. Total dependency. I always tell people you can't have good news without what? Bad news. Otherwise, it's just news. The gospel means good news. And that means there's bad news to the gospel. And the bad news can be a really hard pill to swallow. And if I say I need the gospel every day, then that means every day I need to be reminded of what? Not only the good news, but the bad news. I need both news. And I need one news to be more important than the other news. So why do we need this doctrine of depravity? What function does it carry out? I'm going to suggest five things this morning, practically. Number one, this doctrine of total depravity, a biblical view of ourselves, helps us see ourselves accurately. Let's start there. Seeing my sinfulness helps me see myself accurately. If these things are true, I should be very slow to be wise in my own eyes, shouldn't I? If it is true that in my fallen state I am more sinful than I can imagine, I should recognize my own propensity to sin and self-deception, shouldn't I? At all times and in every circumstance. I should recognize that my capacity to sin is just as powerful as that in the most wicked criminal I could ever think of. I should be ever aware of the sinful lens and culture that I was brought up in and through which I view reality. There are systemic sins that can impact entire nations. Like when a nation gives its children up to be murdered and says it's a good thing. There are sinful practices that, that Paula was sharing with me this week about Zambia, about how sexual abuse is propagated and allowed by a government who does nothing. That is a systemic sin, and it impacts the people who suffer under it and live in it, and they view culture through a reality that is twisted, such that the men think, well, that's just normal. Everybody does it. You see? 
It should be ever, I should be ever aware of the sinful lens and culture that I was brought up in and through which I view reality. I should take great pains to renew my thinking in accordance with the Word of God, to see things for what they actually are, according to God. Number two, so depravity helps me understand myself. Depravity helps, me, helps orient us to the world in which we live. It helps orient us to the world in which we live. Our greatest problem with our world isn't political. It's not sociological. It's not psychological. It's not whatever label you give it. The greatest problem impacting our world is our own radical depravity. Jesus was never surprised at the sins of fallen men and women, was he? Not once. If you look at how he responds to sinners, whether it be uh, zealots or, or women caught in adultery or the poor or the overly powerful or the rich Roman centurion or whatever it is, he's never surprised at the sinful actions of the fallen human race. We shouldn't be either. Amen. We should be more humble in observing people's sins who are different than our own. This comes out in politics a lot. Ooh, he said politics. What's he going to say? When conservatives rage or criticize liberals, or when liberals rage and criticize conservatives, all we're doing is magnifying somebody's blind spot over my own and then judging them for it. We should be more humble in observing people's sins who are different than our own. This proper view helps us see our world and our families. Think about this, children. I love children. I have three. I love them dearly. Their greatest threat isn't a lack of education. Their greatest threat isn't that they won't get into a good college. It's not that they don't have good finances. That's not their greatest threat. Their greatest threat is that little thing in their heart that proverb says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's the greatest problem of a child. Their only hope is the gospel. Parenting methods that see children as innately good, and these are abounding everywhere today, that see my child as innately good, therefore I don't need to direct them or parent them, I just need to enable them to be who they are and never say no and just let them manifest their good nature, are fundamentally flawed as they do not recognize a proper view of man. Foolishness is bound up, bound up in the heart of a child. Left to itself or its own devices, a child's heart will manifest disobedience and waywardness. So parents, with this doctrine of total depravity, don't be afraid to lovingly, patiently, kindly, but nonetheless, Expect obedience from your child. That's why God put you there. Feel free to correct them, to instruct them in the way of righteousness. Think about how this impacts relationships and marriage. Often you think of relationships, if you're looking for one, you're looking for what? Compatibility, right? Are we compatible? What's compatible about two sinners living under one roof? Amen, married people? Nothing. I would say don't look for compatibility. This doctrine says look for Christ-likeness. 
Because if Christ's likeness isn't there, no matter how much compatibility is present, it'll be for naught. Look for Christ's likeness. And we could go on and on at how this helps orient us to our world. Some struggle with anger, with lust, with drunkenness, jealousy, envy, fear, whatever other struggle you may have this morning. And we tend to judge one another for our sin struggles when it looks different from mine, doesn't it? They're a drunkard. They're struggling with drunkenness. They brought this on themselves. We might say, you see, we should have compassion. They're a sinner, and but for the grace of God, God, there go I. Were it not for the grace of God, I would be in that same place. And by the grace of God, I'll help you stay with God. Amen? That's number two. Number three, a biblical view of ourselves as we see ourselves through this lens. Then and only then can we truly appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps this is the most important. Only as I see myself through the lens of the scripture can I appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me quote Paul Washer here. Here's what he says. It is only against the pitch blackness of the night that we see the glory of the stars. And it is only against the pitch blackness of man's radical depravity that we can begin to see the glories of the gospel. If I don't know how sinful I am, I can't truly understand the depth of what Christ did for me, can I? If I don't understand the depths of my depravity, then Romans 5 will sound weird to me when it says, while you were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. We were his enemies, sinners. This is necessary to have a biblical appreciation for the gospel. Number four, a biblical view of depravity is vital, essential to genuine spirituality. Think about this. You call yourself, many people, I talk to people, are you a Christian? They say, I'm spiritual. Spiritual, okay? Maybe you've said that. This is vital to genuine spirituality. Isaiah 57, verse 15b, we could say. Hear God, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. You hear that? Who does God dwell with? The lowly. Who loves the story of the prodigal son? Luke chapter 15. I, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? What was the changing point? What was the point in which he began to turn and finally realize what he had become and finally said, I am in rags and my father he is kind what is the point that he began to change was it not this in verse 19 this realization i am no longer worthy to be called your son was that not the point at which the change of his heart began to 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 come when he realized in his sinfulness, as I squandered my wealth, I squandered my inheritance, I squandered what was given to me, and he says, I'm no longer worthy. 
to be called your son. And this true understanding led him where? Back to his father to plead for mercy. And what did his father give him? Mercy. Grace. If you're here this morning, maybe for the first time, you're coming face to face with your own inherent rebellion against God. Let me ask you, do you feel worthy to be called God's child? May the answer for all of us be, I am not worthy to be called a child. And yet, this is the good news. God in His kindness, in His loving, steadfast love that, en that endures for a thousand generations, offers to call you this morning, though you are not worthy, through the gospel, He offers to call you His child if you will come. He offers to clothe you, not with rags of living in a pigsty or your past, but to give you the very righteousness of Christ himself, if you will come. So let me ask you, are you the prodigal son? Are you the prodigal daughter? Have you left home, swindled your inheritance, living in sin? Come home this morning. Come home. And you will find God is just like the prodigal son's father, watching, waiting, ready to run if you'll come. See? In closing, number five, this proper view of my depravity tells me, tells me this. The only way for my radical depravity to be overcome is by radical grace. The only way for my radical depravity to be overcome is by radical grace. This is what we sing. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow may you be today. Grace, grace, God's grace grace that is greater than all our sin. That's what we need, radical overcoming grace, and to that we will turn next week. Let's pray. Father, I am not, we are not worthy to be called your children. Yet, in Hebrews, you say of Christ that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Thank you for this so great a salvation that you offer us in, through, and by Jesus. Father, I pray that we would not stay in this state of just seeing our fallenness for the sake of sulking, but that we might see redemption is available and that you are incredibly gracious to sinners. May that be evident this morning in the Lord's table as we taste the sweetness of mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.